Father, we come to your word and we're thankful that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John have been faithful to give us an account of Jesus. Because of them, we know that Jesus was the long-awaited-for Messiah. And as we read Mark, we understand Jesus' life, we understand his words, and we understand his mission. It's being literally, week by week, put in front of us so that we could see and know and understand who was this Jesus. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand your word this morning, and how we might apply it to our lives and obey your good commands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at what I have entitled the, str- the Last Straw. The straw that broke the Pharisees' back. Now, I want to kind of give us a visual. And by the way, that's just a little air there. It's going to be 1 through 6, not 1 to 12. I want to give you a visual to help your mind grasp what is Mark driving at in the story today. Now, and if English is not your first language and you don't know this idiom already, you also get a little bit of English. We have an idiom, and it's called the last straw, or we'll often say it another way, the straw that broke the camel's back. And I want us to uh, begin to understand We're going to see, not only in Mark, but as we we study our passage today, we're going to see also in Matthew and Luke, they all point to the singular story as the turning point in the Gospels, a turning point in Jesus' life and ministry. And literally, it was the straw that broke the Pharisees' back. Instead of a camel here, to kind of give you a visual, I want you to think of a group of Pharisees. Instead of a straw, I want you to literally think of a heart with a huge letter M. I want that impressed on your mind, right? You're going to have a group of men. You have them putting this idiom here, this idea of the last straw. That last straw is not a piece of straw. It is a heart with a huge letter M. We'll get to what that means and unpack it, but that little visual is going to help you remember. If If you understand this visual, you will understand the story. You'll understand specifically what Mark was saying. In our story. Now, I want to share with you, and I've been mentioning this. Go ahead and uh, let's pull up the five stories. I've mentioned that this is each and every week, I've tried to tell you, this is the second or the third or the fourth story. Mark opens up the stories of Jesus with what we call five conflict stories. Here is just a graph. This is taken straight from the ESV Study Bible. It's a very helpful guide. And it shows you. So literally, week by week, we've been looking at a different story outlining how Jesus is, is, is really coming into conflict with the religious leaders of the day. We looked at, well, first of all, the story of forgiveness. Remember this, where, where the, the men bring their friend to be healed by Jesus, and, and literally, they start to take away... Uh, parts of the roof so that they could lower their friend down. And Jesus not only is going to uh, heal him, but he's going to tell them in front of the audience to hear that he can also forgive sins, which literally causes, causes alarm. It's, this is heresy. Only God can do that. The next story we see is Jesus eating with sinners, right? This is where our welcome comes from. Jesus, the friend of sinners. And the problem was Jesus 
was hanging out with some pretty, what we would call, unsavory characters. Jesus was hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And he, he was not only just allowing them to come and listen to him teach, when they invited him to dinner, he was going and spending time with them. And, and this caused the Pharisees to be incensed. Because we, no one recognized that back in that day, to be in the presence of people that they considered sinful meant you yourself were unholy. You couldn't go worship in the temple. We next looked at the story of, uh, of fasting. And then last week we took a look at the Sabbath. And this is the fifth and final story. Notice, so in 3, 1 to 6, this one extra note. After this conversation about the Sabbath, so last week we talked about Jesus' disciples walking through the grain fields. They picked some grain, and they ate it. And the Pharisees said they broke the Sabbath law. And we looked at how Jesus unpacked that and said, no, they didn't. You're, you're holding them to a law that is men's law. It's not the laws of God. You're missing the heart of the law. And so this week is the last of those conflict stories. And it's really the last straw. Because what you see after this story is, it is firm. It is now decided that Jesus must be dealt with. And he must be eliminated. Because these clashes aren't going to go away. And so today we're going to take a look at this last story. Now, if you're making notes, so here's the outline for our passage today. Verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the trap. If you didn't notice, the Pharisees were literally specifically waiting for Jesus on a Sabbath to enter into a synagogue and heal. They were just waiting for that opportunity. Next, we're going to see an object lesson. Did you notice how Jesus calls this man? Come here. Come here. Then we're going to see the tables turned. They're looking to catch Jesus and accuse him. And Jesus is going to ask them a question, put them in the spotlight, and demand an answer. Verses 5, we're going to see what makes Jesus angry. If you think, what makes Jesus angry? If, if there's two questions that I think we want to know is, what causes uh, God to, uh, or what pleases God? Would be one question. And the other one is, what makes him specifically angry? We, we're told that in this passage. Lastly, in verse 6, we're going to talk about how the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We're going to see two groups who actually have nothing in common. But one thing they have in common is they hate Jesus. And they're going to work together to form a very strange alliance that is eventually going to eliminate Jesus. All right. Now, let's begin in verse 1. This is the trap. And let me read verse 1 again. It says, again, he entered the synagogue. So when you get the mark, the story's constantly moving. We're not given specific dates uh, but it seems like this could be the very next Sunday after the last Sunday. We don't know, and we don't know if Jesus is going to the same exact synagogue. But here's what we know. Jesus and his disciples had a pattern just like everybody else. On Sabbath, guess where they would be? They would be in the synagogue. And so they're on their way to the synagogue. They're uh, going to be at the synagogue. That's the setting of this story. And there was a man there with a withered hand. Withered hand, uh, if you don't, it's, it means like atrophied. The, the, the muscles have, have lost the ability, their, their strength. And so what I would, I would uh, perceive is somebody who's, whose hand was kind of wrenched in on itself. 
uh, it would be a hand that you wouldn't be able to use, which in a culture which was agrarian and mostly you did everything through hard labor would have been a, a, a severe difficulty. And so there's a man with a withered hand. And it says, and notice this, and they watched Jesus. Like, they were waiting. I, it made me wonder, did, was there a specific synagogue where they just placed their guys and said, you just wait here, because that guy has a withered hand, and one of these days Jesus will end up at this synagogue. Were they following Jesus everywhere he went to see what he did? There, there's things that were not told, but it just made me wonder, because here's what I know. It says they watched to see whether Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. So they already have some plans in their heads. They've already recognized, hey, listen, this Jesus, he's going to cause problems. And in fact, everywhere we go and when we question him in public, he has made clear he disagrees with us and our teaching. I mean, their livelihood is on the line. This is what the Pharisees and scribes do. They're they're religious leaders. They're the interpreters of the law, and they tell people how to get to heaven. So you can imagine what a a thorn in the flesh, what a problem it was if everywhere you went, there was a guy who contradicted your teaching, let alone the fact that this guy also performed miracles and cast out demons. So they were watching specifically how they might accuse him. Now, that, that word accuse is a very specific technical word you might not get. It would be the same word for, like, mounting a legal case, right? So if, if uh, we, we, would, we would use a different terminology if we specifically knew that, like, we were, use, were talking about a court case, right? How you were compiling evidence to make a case against somebody. So this word here is very specific. They weren't just interested in, like, catching Jesus in the act. They were looking for concrete evidence to accuse him so that he can be convicted of a crime. So this was very specific. Now, the question is, what would they accuse him of? What, would, what could they possibly accuse Jesus of? Well, it mirrors the same story from last week. What did they accuse the disciples of? They picked grain while they're walking through the grain fields, and they ate it which we said last week, but you look at the law of Deuteronomy, this is allowed. But what they accused the disciples of was reaping and harvesting, which they said is against the law on the harvest. So you see how tightly they are interpreting the law. So we have not only the law, but like the Pharisees, they built fences and fences and fences so that you basically couldn't operate in a normal way. And this is uh, why Jesus says in Matthew, right? Remember when G- Matt, or Jesus talks about the woes, he says, listen, you put burdens on people's backs and you won't lift a finger to even help them. You, you built such heavy religious systems that nobody even knows how to operate. I can't walk through the fields. I can't take a piece of grain. I can't eat because that's reaping and harvesting. But yet while I might say that, nobody in that culture anyway, would have questioned the interpretation of the Pharisees. And so you had a whole people living under this heavy system of rules, thinking this is what pleased God. So this is the context that Jesus is walking into. How do you deal with an entire culture that has been taught that loving God is this uh, rule-keeping that is so specific 
that you're literally walking on eggshells. What should I do? What should I not do? Can I light a fire? Can I not light a fire? Can I light a match? Can I heat food on the Sabbath? Can I give birth? Maybe I should wait until tomorrow. Can I save my animal that fell in the ditch? Literally, those are all conversations that were being had. So what they were going to accuse Jesus of was work to heal a man on the Sabbath, to take a man's hand that was withered. And for Jesus to heal him would have been work. And they couldn't wait. They couldn't wait. If he heals him, we got him. And you see how bizarre that is. Now, let's look at verse 3. Because that's the trap. The trap is set. They're waiting for Jesus to heal this man because they're waiting for him to break not one of God's laws, one of their laws. And if he breaks one of their laws, they're ready to pounce. They're ready to mount a legal case to get rid of him. Verse 3, it says, And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. So this is the object lesson. If this was the synagogue today, I don't know exactly how the synagogues were set up, but here's what I know. There's a simple pattern. They gathered, they prayed, and they read God's word. Instead of reading it from a, a Bible like this or having an iPod, they had a, or iPod, an iPad, they had a scroll. And usually rabbis would stand up and they would teach. Jesus was one of the recognized rabbis, and so there would have probably been an invitation for Jesus to come and read from the scrolls and interpret the word. Jesus uses this opportunity. Remember, we're reading and, and we understand what's taking place. Nobody else in the audience knows what's going on, right? So we're reading this. We already know the man with the withered hand, Pharisees are waiting to pounce. Jesus stands up and he calls the man out. He says, come here. Now, think of all the ways Jesus could have dealt with this. He could have simply gone and helped, met the man in his house. You think Jesus knew where he lived? He could have dealt with this situation in any number of ways. He could have just said, listen, to heal on the Sabbath, the people just can't handle it. I'll go heal him on the next day. He could have just said, I'll heal him on the Sabbath, but I won't make a public issue of it. No, no, no. Jesus, object lesson, you come here and stand next to me. And Jesus is going to invite him, and so it's very clear what Jesus is doing. Jesus knew the thoughts in the Pharisees' minds. And Jesus was very specific that he wanted to make a public incident out of this specific healing. Now, if you think about this, we always, we, let's kind of play the devil's advocate, right? Let's, uh, if we, we're, let's not just assume all the nice things we believe about Jesus. Let's also assume what was the enemy say or what could we say? Couldn't Jesus have figured out a better way than to embarrass the Pharisees in front of everybody else? Is that kind or loving to really basically call them out in front of everybody? Like, why didn't he just go heal them on the side? Why literally make this a public situation where the Pharisees would not only be challenged, they'd be proven wrong, and they'd walk away basically embarrassed? Now, if you're thinking about that question, maybe, maybe you have a kinder, gentler, bleeding heart. Let me put that to rest. Because there's something bigger at stake, and I want us to look at Matthew 23. And I want you to see exactly why Jesus is not going to allow this to be something that's done on the side. Jesus wants to heal him. He wants to heal him in public, and he wants to do it right in front of the very Pharisees who are waiting for him to heal so they accuse him. 
But Jesus is going to do it in a way where he's going to show them that they're in the wrong. Matthew 23, 13 to 15 says this. I've already explained to you the kind of prevailing culture around the scribes and the Pharisees and their understanding of how religious law-keeping is exactly what made, brought you into heaven. Jesus says this, Matthew 23, 13 to 15. I want you to watch carefully what he says about the Pharisees. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Or proselyte. That, that means to convert somebody into uh, their beliefs and their, their belief system. It says, You travel across sea and land to convert a single person. And when he converts or when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. That's strong words. That's strong words. But now you know why Jesus made this a public incident. It's because heaven and hell was at stake. This was not a simple uh, discussion or, or, or a point of disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees. And what we need to do is just come together, let cooler heads prevail, and have a nice discussion Jesus wanted everyone to see, not just the Pharisees. Everyone in that audience that would have been in that synagogue needs to know that the pathway to God and the highway to heaven is not through rule-keeping. That will make you a son of hell. But it's through something very different. And that's going to be, we're going to eventually see, that's going to be through Jesus. But I want to make that clear. Jesus makes an object lesson and he makes this incident very public. And he's going to show them what you're doing and trying to convince everybody about keeping the laws like you are and even trying to prevent me from healing a man on the Sabbath. You're making sons of hell. I don't know if I could put it any more plain and clear to you. But that's strong language. In fact, I remember when I was a kid, you didn't even say hell. You said H-E-double-L. Or sometimes in America, because of the ho- we say H-E-double hockey sticks. Uh, a hockey stick looks like an L. I mean, we didn't even say those things. Because it is strong language. But you need to understand what's at stake. Eternity is at stake. And Jesus understood what was at stake. Now, let's look at verse 4, because we're going to see Jesus is going to turn the tables. We have the Pharisees waiting to watch Jesus heal a man. And their desire is to use that to accuse him. Jesus is going to turn the tables and just ask them a question. He says in verse 4, And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To give life or to kill? Now, when I first read that verse, I wasn't exactly sure what Jesus was saying, but this was simply a, this was like, have you ever been in like Sunday school and the teacher asks a question and like everybody knows it because everybody knows the answer is 
Jesus uh, when, when you're often in Sunday school. Like, so, uh, you know, who, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, even with, uh, with our kids, is, is that we, we talk so much about Jesus and the gospel that whenever we ask them a question, the first thing they'll say is, Jesus. Jesus the, this was such a simple answer. It's on the same kind of level as that. Jesus says, on the Sabbath, are you allowed to do good or to do wrong? That's basically the question. So Jesus has this man in front of him. Here's the man with the withered hand. They're waiting to watch him heal. Instead, Jesus asks a question. What does God want from you? To do good or to do wrong? To give life or to kill? Notice their reaction. They were silent. The teachers of the law. I often wondered, like, did anybody speak up? Uh, I don't know exactly what the dynamic was at the synagogue, but would it Knowing that they would have respected the teachers of the law and the scribes, would, it, would an average person have said, to do good, uh, to give life? That, the answer was really simple. But it says at least the teachers of the law were silent. But I think everybody sitting there, they knew the answer. They were screaming inside, do good. You do good on the Sabbath. What does God want not only on the Sabbath but every day? To do good, to give life. But nobody answers the question. Because the Pharisees and those with them, their hearts were so hard that the the whole object lesson was lost. They didn't even care. Let's look at verse 5. We're going to take a look at what makes Jesus angry. You saw that they were silent, but this says... And he looked around at them with anger. What what makes Jesus angry? We're going to find out. He says they're grieved. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Jesus performs the miracle right in front of all their eyes with a group of Pharisees whose hearts were so hard that on one side they wanted more than anything for Jesus to heal this man because it allowed them to accuse him. But their hearts were so hard they took no joy in seeing this man's hand healed. They had no mercy. And this was exactly kind of the principle from last week. It's the very same principle that the Pharisees are missing again and again and again. All right, last week, Jesus' disciples were, were hungry. They grabbed grain and they ate it. And Jesus said, you're missing the point. If you think that's work, you're missing the, the spirit of the law. And he gives the, the example, remember, from David, of David's men. When they were hungry, they ate the priest's bread, which was not allowed. And Jesus said, listen, you're not getting it. It is right to show mercy. Human need trumps your laws. And then he says the Sabbath was not made for, uh, for man, but man for the Sabbath. Did I say that reversed? Uh, yeah, uh, the, the sa- man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. That was a trick question. Way to go. Way to go. All, right. All, right. All of you paying attention? Asuki was the first one that I saw with a confused look. Uh, you, yes, you're the winner. Uh, 
So Jesus says, no, you got it reversed. Remember, you got it in reverse order, and it's the same thing here. Let me just remind you, this is Micah 6, 8. This is one of the Old Testament summaries. So before Jesus, remember, uh, we have a summary of the entire Old Testament from Jesus where he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, and the second command is like it, your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is going to summarize Old Testament and those two things, love God, love people. But Micah, before this, we had a summary from the Old Testament of what God wanted from his people, and this is it. Micah 6, 8, it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. Uh, other, uh, other versions might have to love mercy. And that's what they're missing. And, and these leaders of the people who are trying to bring them to please and know God and lead them towards heaven, they're missing one thing, is that they do not love mercy. And so Jesus is going to make that clear. And I just want to point out two things here when we see how Jesus is going to uh, heal this man, knowing how angry he's going to make the, the Pharisees. I don't know if you've ever let fear prevent you from doing what you knew was right. But I think one of the challenges we face on a daily basis is, I know this is right, but I don't know if I want to pay the consequences of walking this out. And one of the things that happens again and again in Jesus' life is he never cares about the consequences. He will always tell us what God has said, And he always shows love in the moment and doesn't care about the Pharisees' rules. Even though he knows not only is it going to cause a problem, it was probably no little disturbance. It would have been been crazy because I would say a good portion of that synagogue would have been absolutely joyful. And in the very same synagogue, on the other side would have been people. Have you ever seen somebody that's like visibly trembling because they're so angry? Have you, have you seen that? Where, like, you know, okay, they're not just, we probably need to talk, where you know that they are, like, violently angry. That we would have had in this synagogue both. And I don't know if, you've, if you have ever been in a situation where you know, if I do this, somebody will get that angry. But one of the things we see with Jesus, again and again, Jesus never thinks twice about doing God's will or doing the right thing, no matter what the cost. And I also just, and linked to that very specific truth is this, and we're going to see this in verse 6, but literally this is the beginning of the plans for Jesus' death. Because have you ever been embarrassed? I mean, not like funny embarrassed, like, hey, I fell, uh, right? And you kind of get up, dust yourself off, and you can laugh with them. But the Pharisees would have been embarrassed on a whole nother level. Because Jesus had literally called the man up and shown that their teaching was wrong. And challenged their very authority. And is pointing the way to God is not through them and their system. It is through loving mercy and kindness. And Jesus is going to eventually show it's through me. If you follow Jesus... That was his message in the kingdom. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So Jesus is constantly pointing away from the Pharisees and to himself. Listen, you don't recover from that kind of confrontation, right? So you can imagine how violent the Pharisees' anger would have been. And we're going to see that next. In verse 6, this is our last point for the sermon today, and this is the enemy of the enemy is my friend. Verse 6, it says, The Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? to destroy him. Now, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not two people you would normally put together. We've got to understand these two parties had nothing in common. In fact, everything within them, as far as what they believe, kept them apart. So the Pharisees, as, as we've been sharing again and again, the Pharisees were separatists. They wanted to keep God's law, and they believed that God's people were, were not doing enough to be holy or to be considered holy. And so they had basically stepped out of normal Jewish culture, and they had built an entire uh, system of laws and rules and regulations of what it actually looked like to please God. Last week I told you just about the Sabbath alone. There was 39 different rules about how you must keep the Sabbath. And those rules have rules, by the way. And even today, in fact, if you want to look up Orthodox Jewish faith, you will find those same 39 rules, and they're now made for modern day. In the past, you couldn't ride a a donkey or you could not ride an animal. Today, they forbid riding a car. In the past, you couldn't light a fire. And today, you can't put on the kettle, the stove, turn on the light. The same rules are there, and they've continued. And that same system is still there. And that same broken system is still leading people to become sons of hell. And that teaching has not gone away. And so the Pharisees were very strict keepers of the law. Now, here's the Pharisees. Over here, we've got the Herodians. Herodians have nothing to do with the Jewish law-keeping. In fact, the Herodians are Jews who support King Herod and support his rule and his reign. They support his, his, the, uh, or Herod's dynasty. And the reason they do is because we all know when there's people in power and you support people in power, they will treat you in a way that will, will show, listen, you're a supporter, you're kind, then you will have, whether it's funds or positions, right? We, we see that the entire philosophy of, of Western government, you have governments and then you have lobbyists. Lobbyists have a specific agenda that, or a specific axe to grind as far as they are constantly lobbying for, it could be the cheese industry, it could be the meat industry, it could be the auto industry. And we know that basically lobbyists are there to support a certain cause. This is what the Herodians are. The Herodians are basically Jewish lobbyists for King Herod. Pharisees and Herodians have nothing in common. What they believe is completely opposite. But here's what they both saw. The Herodians saw a political threat. If this man can attract 
thousands of people, and his miracle, there's miracles literally happening. The average person is going to love and want Jesus to be not only a rabbi, but they're going to want to see him take a position of power and influence. And the Herodians immediately begin to think, King Herod's job is at stake. And guess who gives them their position and money and all their funds? King Herod. So that's what they're in fear of. The Pharisees are in fear of losing their authority and livelihood to lead God's people. In fact, it has been challenged again and again and again. All right, so we have two enemies, but they share one common enemy, who is Jesus. And so they're going to partner together. It says they went out immediately and held counsel. When it says they held counsel, that means that uh, specifically it means to devise a plan or a series of steps with a specific goal in mind. So they didn't just get together and talk. The scriptures make clear the Herodians and the Pharisees made a very specific plan with very specific steps to eliminate Jesus. And by the way, I, uh, so I wanted to look at what, what does this word destroy mean? Could it, could it possibly mean something else? So I looked up the word destroy. What, and by the way, Matthew 12, 14, let's, let's bring this up. So we have this story in Mark, but it's also, we have the very same story in Matthew. We have the very same story in Luke. Here's how Matthew puts it. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Same exact word. Luke 6.11 says, They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. You get the very clear picture from Matthew, from Mark, from Luke. This was the moment where they decided Jesus must die. Let's go back to our visual. Remember I told you if you get the visual, then you'll walk home with Mark's meaning. What is the context or what is the meaning of this passage? The visual was we had that saying, the last straw or the straw that broke the camel's back. When you look at Mark, when you look at Matthew, when you look at Luke, all three use the same language and point to this very incident. This was the game changer. After this, nothing was the same. Jesus calling a man to the front, Jesus healing a withered man's hand, and Jesus basically condemning the Pharisees to their face and saying, is it right to do good on the Sabbath or to do harm? And they didn't answer, and so Jesus sits there and he does what he says is good. He heals this man's hand. So they held cancer, how they destroy him, specifically that word destroy, I tell you how to explain it. It says, to actively ruin to kill or to bring to ruin. And when it's used of an impersonal object, so when it's used of a person, it means to bring to ruin or to bring about their death. When it's used of an object, it means to bring to complete destruction. So if there's any doubt as to what this was, it wasn't a plan to harm Jesus. It wasn't a plan to silence Jesus. It wasn't a plan to imprison Jesus. It wasn't a plan to kill Jesus. So I want to end with just two thoughts the big context, which I already made clear, is that visual. If you, if, if we, when we approach Scripture, if our main concern is what is the author saying, what is the main point of the author, the main point of the author is clear. 
This is the straw that broke the camel's back. This is what the incident. Remember, I told you, imagine that scene. Imagine, instead of that camel, imagine those Pharisees. Imagine that last straw, a heart with a huge M. Let's get to that M. What is it? If that's the context of the story, if that's the meaning of the story, I want to talk about a specific walkaway truth, and I want you to understand this about Jesus. It's amazing to me that basically you have two different perspectives on one story. The man with the withered hand, for Jesus, it was an opportunity to show mercy. And for the Pharisees, it was the last straw that would bring about absolute hatred, vitriol, anger, and his death. Same incident, two completely different perspectives. What I want you to see and walk away with knowing about Jesus is this. Jesus loved showing mercy more than his own life. Jesus knew this little situation with a man with a withered hand would be the straw that would lead the Pharisees to want to kill him. And I want you to see that Jesus loved showing mercy more than his own life. Let me make an argument from lesser to the greater. They often do this in debate. You take a principle that is considered a, a lesser truth, and you can apply it to a greater truth. So here's the lesser truth. If Jesus is willing to lay his life down to heal a man's withered hand, then you have to see and understand how much he longed to lay his life down for our sin. If he was willing to heal a physical hand, knowing the firestorm that this would bring about, that after this moment, the Pharisees and the Herodians would conspire to kill him. And Jesus was willing to say, I'll heal, knowing that this will mean my death. How much more would Jesus be willing to lay down his life to bring each one of us into eternity to be with the Father? Jesus loved mercy more than the cost of his life. And not only do we see it here, we see it on the cross. Is in that moment where Jesus was praying, God, if, it, uh, if there could be any other way to bring people into your kingdom, take this cup from me. Jesus is literally praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says, but Father, not your, my will, but yours. Jesus loved showing mercy. He loved laying down his life more than the reality that showing mercy would mean his death. So one final question as we look at this story. That kind of love, that kind of mercy, is life-changing. I'll tell you one thing. That man with the withered hand walked away and his life was changed. He had a story, 
about a man who healed his hand, but he had a story about a man who literally stood up and was willing to stand in the face of the Pharisees who didn't want him to heal and say, I will choose to show mercy rather than to hold my life sacred. How much more do we have a story for everyone who begins to understand this concept that Jesus has not only gone and laid his life down for a man whose hand was withered, he has laid his life down for everybody who has sinned to have a Savior. Have you accepted that love? Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories about Jesus. We thank you for Mark chapter 3. We thank you for Jesus who was willing to stand up to the Pharisees. We thank you for Jesus' heart who loved mercy more than his own life. And God, we thank you that we also know the end of the story. We know that as we follow the gospel of Mark, the journey leads to Jesus' death on a cross for sins. God, I would pray that anybody who has not received that gift, who has not understood your love and your mercy, that is willing to forgive our sins for everybody who places their faith in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that every single person here would walk away knowing that you have laid in front of them that gift. If you're here and hearing the story, I want to invite you to make that decision to follow Jesus Christ. If you'd like to talk to somebody about what, it, what does this actually mean to follow Jesus, then I would invite you to talk to myself or Stefan or any one of our members. God, as we leave this place, help us be a people who long to show mercy. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.